We're continuing our sermon series on God's good creation. And this morning, the sermon title, I've simply given it God's image in relationship. Of all of what God did, everything he did, he did with a purpose in mind that he wanted his glory to be reflected in all of creation throughout the universe. It always was about God, it always has been about God, and always will be about God. And so we too, as God's creation, we're not about ourselves, we're about God, created to reflect that glory of God. In my mind, I image it, I picture it a little bit like, in, like a pyramid, we could say. All of creation, the universe, the cosmos, the uh, galaxies, our, const, our, our um, little um, solar system, and then our world, everything, it just progressed and God moved forward to the point where one day he made humans, the crowning act of creation, and they would more than anything reflect his image. And again, all of this, the purpose of it was to glorify God. Last Sunday, I mentioned in my sermon that I would encourage people to take some time during the week and read Psalm 119. I don't know how many may have read it or maybe read parts of it. One person I know did. To me, that psalm is a very clear passage of Scripture outlining to the reader his desire and longing for God. And it is only as we're grounded and established and rooted in God that everything else in life falls into place. A huge part of this has to do with relationship. So this morning, we're continuing our series on God's good creation. And for this sermon, we want to look at what God's image looks like in relationship. And more specifically, we're going to go into the part that we call marriage. When it comes to marriage, there are a few things I need to say first. Some people at this very moment might right now be thinking, okay, well, some message on marriage, and I'm not in marriage, I'm, not, I'm single, I'm out, and maybe you want to turn off your device and go do something more productive or more interesting, more entertaining or whatever. My request is please don't, stay with us, and um, hopefully this can still be a blessing to you. Just because a person may be single, that does not mean that person is less of an image bearer of God than a married person. I want that to be clear. God does not somehow have people who are less image bearers and some who are more image bearers. We're all equally image bearers. Some just do a better job of it. But marriage does not, either way, singleness or marriage, does not dictate this. Single people are just as much image bearers as married people are. So whether a person is married or single, God created both for relationship. Yes, everyone needs a connection. But not everyone's destined for a marriage relationship. And we can talk about that. It would take too long this morning to go into the, all the ins and outs of that. Paul talks about that. Jesus talks about that. I'll make a few references later on a little bit. But for those who are in marriage or who intend to be in marriage, there's something they need to remember. Just because a person gets married does not make them more of a person. I'm just, trying, I'm just going in circles here a little bit. Does not make them more of a person. Just because a person is married does not mean they are now a greater value. Married or single, all people have equal value. But there is a difference in responsibilities and obligations at some level. Unmarried and married people, as I said, are equally called to live in relationship with God and other human beings. That does not change. What I want to say is this. If a person decides to get married 
or a person is married, their married life is supposed to reflect that part of God's relationship. And that's something we have a choice in, to get married or not to. And if a person remains single, then in that state of living, that person is supposed to reflect God's glory. Let me also say this at the outset before I should forget it. If you are married, and if you're doing it right, and because we live in a sin-stained and sin-damaged world, your marriage will be a cross to you from the physical side. As a person, in terms of your interests, your desires, your ambitions, and your, your priorities in life, it will be a cross to you. If it's not a cross, then I question if something is not being done right. Some people, if they get married, they somehow have gained a servant. They are now in possession of a um, slave. That is a completely wrong view of marriage. For somebody listening now, maybe they feel that marriage is something we can modify, customize, tailor design. No, we really can't. We are going to go into Scripture in a moment here, but God has set the boundaries, the parameters, the limitations, what marriage is. And all of us need to understand that. So what does God say about reflecting His glory in relationship as it relates to marriage? Again, as I said before, God designed the whole thing for relationship. Human beings are for relationship, but there's a bit of a difference in how a single person does it and how a married person does it. It is true that our, various, our needs are not all equal as humans. Some of us are, are introverts, some are extroverts. Some are social, some are not. Some are more loners, some are want, want uh, to be with people. But regardless, we are, not, uh, we are not lone rangers. All of us are created for relationship. Another thing I want to mention before we start reading the scripture passages, this relationship factor in our human existence is something we have to want. And in order for us to want it, we have to need it. In order for us to need it, we have to go through those steps, through that process where it becomes a need. For instance, a parent may say to a young little child, the child wants to go play in the snow, and the parent says, well, put on your gloves. I don't need gloves. The child might say, okay, then go out and play. And very soon the child comes back, can I have gloves, please? And they're frozen little fingers, and they want to put gloves on there. Sometimes only after the need is realized, after the person has become aware of the need, does the person want to get that need met. We are created with a need for relationship. And regardless of how we live in relationship, whether we're living as a married relationship, in a married relationship or living in a single relationship, we are created for relationship. So how does this relate to God's good creation to the sermon series? You see, when God created life on this earth, he had finished creating all the vegetation, then he made animals, and then he said it was good. He made, he made um, people in our image and our likeness. And the story tells us that he made a man, but God did not make a woman right away. He waited a bit. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I have some thoughts. And I wonder, did Adam right at the start sense he was alone? Did he sense that there were no other people around him, just animals? What did Adam experience? Well, let's read the story. Genesis 2, beginning verse 18. Then the Lord God said, 
It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Who brought this into existence? Whose fault was this? That it was not good that the man should be alone. God, he did it. Adam had nothing to do with this. Adam didn't say, well, I think I'm alone. God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. He knew from the get-go, even from before creation, he knew what he was going to do. But God allowed this sequence of events to unfold to reveal a very important truth. And again, that points to relationships. This needed to be something that Adam would be aware of and sense and feel before God was going to address it. So God did something. Thinking about the man, we of course do not know what he may have been thinking right when God created him. What is interesting is how God went about in dealing with this need. It's interesting that God had the man do something before God addressed the situation of him being alone. God had created all of life. He brought all the animals to the man to see what he would name them. We may wonder, okay, well, what's with that? What would that change? How is that even important? Now, I'm not an authority on this, but I do have my own thoughts. I think that when the animals came to Adam, I don't think that they came one by one, one dog and one cat and one mouse and one zebra and one lion and one giraffe. I don't think that's how it happened. I think they came in either pairs or groups at least, at least at least pairs. So here's Adam, he sees one life form after another. Here come maybe a few dogs. Here come maybe a pair of geese. Here come maybe a few zebras. Here come maybe a few lions, and, and so on. And I don't know how long it took him to do this, but this is the story. And Adam sees it's the beauty. He sees the majesty, and he names these, these, uh, these creatures and the complexity of God's creation. And I believe it's somewhere in there that this desire for companionship comes to life. It lights up. It says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. It's almost as if there's somebody for everybody except me. Something was missing. He was alone. God planned it that way. What is a good word picture for this? And how does one explain this? You know, it's always thirsty. It's always good to be thirsty before you get a drink of water. Water tastes better. It's always good to be really hungry before you eat a hamburger. The burger tastes better. If you're not thirsty, you won't appreciate the water. If you're not, f- not hungry, you won't need a hamburger or maybe pizza or whatever. Adam was a man who needed to be in relationship, but he had to physically and emotionally and mentally, socially, experience that need to appreciate or to value or to understand it. He was alone. He had nobody. And that realization prepared him for what God had in store. Again, let's see what God did. Let's remember. So far, the man has done one job. We don't know how much he did in the garden before Eve came along. But he's done something. He's named the animals. Calling the animals by name is a big job, maybe. 
But then God, the, the, real, the need is now realized. God said it's not good, he's alone. He gives him a job. He names all the animals. And then in verse 21 it says, So, so the Lord God, notice how God is doing everything here. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. A lot of things we could point out here, but one is God did not need Adam to create Eve or design Eve. There's a lot of fun and humor being poked at the story. And one wag put it this way, God made a man, looked at him, said, I can do better, and he made a woman. Another one said, man was the prototype and woman was the masterpiece. And there's a lot of funny little anecdotes and stories and jokes made about that. But one thing I want to say is God did not make one superior to the other. God did not make one better than the other. They're both 100% equal in the eyes of God. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians, he says, There is no difference in God's eyes, male or female, doesn't matter. God values, loves, cares, and appreciates everyone just the same. The story does tell us that God made the man fall asleep and took a rib and made a woman. The significance of this is that we humans are all connected. We're all interdependent. We're not disconnected. We are a human family on this earth. We are all God's creation. So God took the rib, made a woman, and brought her to the man. Some theologians make mention that God took a rib, something close to the heart. God did not take a toe so the woman could be stepped on and used. Nor did God take part of his head or his skull so that she could be the boss of the man. I'm not here to go into that. But what I will say is this. This speaks of oneness, of relationship, of unity, and equality. It's fascinating God took dirt to make the man, and then he takes a part of the man and makes a woman. And again, we see the connection and relationship here. And when the man wakes up, he has nothing to do with this. And he's been busy naming the animals. He's put to sleep. God makes a woman. He gets the surprise of his life, and there's a woman. And he knows and he sees this is another human being. And notice how he responded in verse 23. It says in verse 23, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Just reflect back now. Adam had named all the animals. He had looked and observed each and every animal that was alive. He had named the animals. There was no living being or creature that was suitable for him. But this living creature was different. This creature was like him, human. And he said as much, this is at last, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. It was at that point, at that moment, at that instant, that creation was finished and it was total, complete. We cannot imagine what it may have been like, a place where everything was right, perfect, holy, and sinless. That's what the Bible tells us it was. And this idea of a man being married to a woman, that was God's idea. Adam had nothing to do with it. God designed this relationship setting between a man and a woman that way. Let's continue reading verse 24. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's the foundation. 
That's the cornerstone. That's the basis on which every society functions. And just a little bit of a tangent here. When this is undermined or discredited or this is eroded and eventually discarded, it's only a matter of time before that society stops functioning. And there's so much history that has been written over so many thousands of years that sheds so much light on this, what happens to societies when this basic unit is disrupted. Let me share some thoughts about this here. Because this is so, as it mentions here, every man who marries a woman must disconnect, he must separate, he must leave his mother and his father. He cannot stay connected. What this implies is that when a man marries a woman, at that point, father and mother are no longer the go-to people for him. His wife is his go-to person. It does not mean he hates his mother and father and has no relationship with them and can't visit them. That's not what it means. But it means he's unplugged. He's disconnected. He is now separated. Now his wife is the most important person in his life. For a man to, quote-unquote, hold fast to his wife means that she is his everything. He is her provider. He is her protector. He is her leader. That's correct. The Bible talks about that. And it is his responsibility to take ownership of the leadership situation and protect and care and nurture his wife. I didn't say boss or controller. It's very clear here. This is relationship focused. The man is responsible to take ownership of that and give himself to that relationship. And for the wife, on the other side, it's also just the same. It's her responsibility to fulfill her role, not as his slave or his doormat, but as his helper. When this is lived out in harmony, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, this is a beautiful picture of God's grace and God's power and glory reflected in the marriage relationship. I've seen it both ways. I've seen in marriages where this is lived out well. The wife joyfully accepts and benefits from the security and the protection, the headship the husband provides. The husband enjoys giving himself sacrificially for the benefit and the growth and development of his wife. It's a beautiful unity. But sadly, it also works the other way. A man may get married, he considers himself he has now gotten some property, and he treats her as such. And she suffers for it, and he denies and deprives himself the benefit of having a relationship with a beautiful person. Or, conversely, on the other side, it's also the other way. A, man, a woman gets married, now she feels she needs to control the situation, she takes the wheel, so to speak, and the man not doing his job, he just rolls with it, and the wife deprives herself of the beauty of a relationship where he would be providing and protecting for her, and she just wears herself out trying to control something she was never meant to. Either way, the relationship was not what God planned. And that's not what God wanted. But at the beginning, with Adam and Eve, it started out right, and it started out good. Let me ask the question this way. Does anyone know how total and how complete this union was that God created? Well, let's read the next verse, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This story simply tells us this, there was a time when they did not wear clothes. On the surface, it sounds like it was a perfect environment, and it was. Clothes were not needed. I'm sure the place did have perfect environment and beautiful weather, and so clothing was not the issue there. But what does this really mean, or what does it point to? It says they were not ashamed. See, there was no sin, no, no secrets, no hidden agendas, no ulterior motives. For Adam and Eve, two human beings living in peace and harmony and complete innocence and holiness, 
complete fellowship with God and with one another, no emotional barriers, no misunderstanding, and no miscommunication. Wow. Think of it. Between Adam and Eve, no competition, no vying for control, no one-upmanship. No one was boss, no one was slave, no one was in control, each doing the thing that God created them to do. Holiness, purity, love, unity and oneness in action. I remember many years ago, a young family moved into a house across the street from us. They had several children. Anna and I did not get to know them very well, but it seemed like they were doing okay. I do remember one day the young, the young man coming over to our house, and one thing we had in common, we both had wood stoves. We both were chopping wood or providing wood for the winter. We lived in Tilbury at the time. So we got to talking about our families, about our wife and kids and so on. And I don't know what kind of man he really was. He was nice to talk to, but other than that, I don't really know much, knew much about him. But he made a comment about his family, the, the wife, married, kids, and all that. He said, there's room for only one rooster in this house, meaning his house. I didn't have enough of a relationship to go into deep discussion with him, but I've often reflected on what he said. You see, we as human beings are not animals. And in our day, there are a lot of men who do not reflect God's glory in their marriage, and they are like a rooster. Noisy, loud and controlling, and bossy. Same was true for some women, who do not want to reflect God's glory in their relationship with their husbands. They want to control, they push and shove and do whatever they need to just to be in control. Driving the man in frustration and despair. Someone termed these guys hen-pecked men. There's a joke I could tell about it, but I will leave it for another day. The Bible speaks to both of this, and I hope to cover some more of that in a, in a later sermon. But let's bring this to a close. When God created Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden. The whole purpose, the whole motive, the whole objective was God wanted these two people in marriage relationship to reflect his glory back to him. At the start, it did happen that way. It worked. But then we know, of course, in Genesis 3, it all fell apart. God's plan was that first couple, they were the crown of creation. They would enjoy life together, have children. Those children would marry, increase in the world, would be filled with God's image bearers who would love each other and be in fellowship with him, and it would be paradise. People may wonder, with all the chaos, all the confusion, as broken as things are now, how was it all supposed to work? And the problem that we face as humans is we don't have a perfect point of reference. The Bible is a perfect point, but we have no perfect person say, that person does it right, or is perfect. We don't have perfect points of reference from which to gauge what we should be doing, because everybody is now distorted. I remember years ago as a teenager, I didn't wear glasses, and I didn't know that I couldn't see well. All I knew is that others could see better than I could, and I didn't have no idea how to fix this. And I just, knew, I just thought, okay, I just can't see as well. And then one day, I looked through a pair of glasses from another person who was nearsighted, and all of a sudden, the world looked entirely different. The world was like changed before my eyes. Everything was clear, crisp, and sharp, like something like HD or something, they call it. I had never seen the world that way before. And then in a few more years, I did receive a pair of glasses. But up to that point, I was always a bit puzzled why people could see stuff that I couldn't. That's a bit what's happened to marriage. We see it through murky lenses, from our cultural standpoint, from the world standpoint. But the Bible is a clear lens. But even though the Bible is a clear lens, there's nobody in the Bible, not even Adam and Eve, who lived up to the, demand, the standards. We know what they did. So we all have work to do. Started out good, but it didn't stay good. So how does it apply to us today? If a person's married, 
Let that marriage reflect God's glory. But we also live in a world where not everybody does get married. Some people stay single, and it's God's will for them. You have many saints in the Bible. Paul was a saint who was never married. John the Baptist was a saint who was never married. Jesus himself was never married. We have some of the prophets who we believe may not have been married. But regardless of the place that God puts us, in our interactions with each other, how we relate to people, it always is supposed to fulfill that mandate, that purpose, to reflect God's glory. And for most of us, myself especially, and all of us I would say included, it takes an awful lot of repenting many times because we fail so badly. If we do this right, it will mean taking up a cross to do it right because that's the only way we can do it well. Before sin came into the world, there was no cross to carry. There was this complete holiness, oneness, sinlessness, and unity. But with the coming of sin, that's why Jesus came. And today, to deny ourselves, to live for the next person, to put others before ourselves, that takes a cross. This holiness and unity still needs to be demonstrated, whether we're married or single, regardless of the place God called us in life to be. So may God help us. Serve one another in holiness and surrender and oneness and in unity wherever he calls us. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings to us. Lord, thank you for the word that you have left with us that we can read, we can study, we can marinate ourselves in it, and we can learn what you've called us to do, what you've called us to exemplify, and the glory you call us to reflect. May we be faithful, Lord. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be image bearers who reflect your glory back to you, regardless of the lot in life we have, whether married or single. All of us are called to live in relationship. There's a difference between married and single, but at the same time, all of it pointing back to you. Help us to live that out in Jesus' name. Amen.